you would remember those images that flashed on TV some maybe two years ago with the coffin and the man in the coffin and the big crowd around the coffin and he raised the guy from the dead. Well, supposedly. So they saw there was a cell phone in the guy's pocket and they, they caught him on video breathing while he was still dead. So the mainstream media went to town with this, exposed him as a fraud. But yet, this guy's still got a huge following, as you know. Um, he's the epitome of what we come to know as a prosperity pastor. He owns a Ferrari and a Lamborghini and a Bentley and a Rolls Royce and a Range Rover. And if that wasn't enough, every Sunday when he comes to church, he's escorted with a police escort. As he drives his, his car, the, the cops escort him. He claims to speak new prophetic words from God, uh, claims to do miracles, and his essential message is that it's God's will for you to be happy and healthy and rich and successful. Uh, the tragedy is that this type of Christianity is what most South Africans, and probably go up there the, north of the Limpopo too, is it's, this is, for most of us, our experience of Christianity. Tragically. Because the nature of the prosperity gospel is that it's insidious. It's everywhere. Um, it's um, in these kind of obvious examples like Bushiri and uh, Lukao and um, the Nigerian guy and then you can name the list and carry on. But those are easy to see those examples. But the reality is that prosperity theology has infiltrated just about every other church in this country. In some form or another. Okay, and that's what we want to look at. Is how do we identify these common teachings? I mean, I mean, even in the broad evangelical churches in the suburbs, this stuff is there. Okay, and the message in these churches is that it's God. God just wants to bless you and make you happy and help you enjoy a successful middle class life. Now. I'm doing this teaching as someone who was in that context. I used to teach prosperity theology. Uh, in particular, my church was very um, influenced by a guy called Bill Johnson, who we'll look at. And then also just to say that the video that they're going to show tonight, strongly recommend American Gospel. It's, it's an excellent unpacking of the prosperity gospel. But I was teaching this stuff. I was in the circles. And... It's really easy to get swept up in this. And the reality is that I think most of us are involved in theological education, preaching and in churches. The reality is that most of the students who we teach are coming from contexts where prosperity gospel is rife. And they're coming into our classrooms with these prosperity gospel assumptions. And the one assumption in particular I could come across with Certainly some of my students is that they have got an impression that their calling into the, into the ministry is so that they can be rich and they can have a successful life. That assumption is there, even amongst Mukanio students. Okay? Because this theology has just gone, gone really, really deep. So because of that, as theological educators, we really need to be equipped in order to, to deal with these false assumptions, to identify the nature of, of the prosperity gospel, to have a clear understanding of what it is, so that we can better equip our students to, to stand against it, and ultimately to equip them to preach the real thing, to preach the true gospel of Christ, to faithfully preach the scriptures and and that's, that is our high calling as those of us involved in theological education. We have a unique opportunity to shape the future leaders of the church. And so this is one of the reasons why what we are doing is so important. That we, we equip 
our students against such insidious um, teaching, such as the prosperity gospel. So the aim of this workshop, firstly, I want to just look at what is the prosperity gospel very briefly. Then what are the claims of the prosperity gospel? And then how do we equip our students to, to stand against it? And then we can have a time of questions, discussions. But as I said, you're welcome to, to interject Anytime. So first off, what is the prosperity gospel? I've given you a quote from Kenneth uh, Mbuguya. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Nairobi, in Kenya. And this is how he defines it. It is a gospel claiming freedom from sickness, poverty, and all suffering on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. Promising material, physical, and invisible blessings for all who would embrace it. The prosperity gospel insists that God's will is for his children to prosper here and now. Okay, it's a succinct quote. Don't need to explain it. It tells you exactly what it is. Essentially, what we see with the prosperity gospel is that it's transactional in nature. Okay, in other words, it's conditional. If we do certain things for God then he is obligated to do certain things for us. Um, to bless us, to heal us, to prosper us, etc., etc. So, what are the origins of the prosperity gospel? Where did it all come about? Well, um, this is one thing the American Gospel DVD looks at in, in a greater detail. I'm just going to give you the, the, the bare essentials here. It arose in the early 20th century among the Pentecostal movement, and in particular through a Baptist pastor called E.W. Kenyon. And this guy didn't receive any theological, formal theological training. Instead, he was deeply influenced by pantheism. Okay, pantheism, what's that? It's that God is within everything. Okay, that. We all mini gods. Uh, the river has got divine essence flowing through it. All humans have got divine um, essence. All create creation is is God. There's no distinction between creator and and, and creation. So he was deeply influenced by pantheism. He was influenced by Gnosticism. Okay, early this, uh, Christian heresy that the New Test, a lot of the New Testament um, rebuffs, um, basically that there's secret revelations that, that as Christians we've got to um, we've got to access and and discover new truths that are, are not in revealed Scripture, and that's how we we get saved. Um, and it was through these pantheistic and Gnostic ideas that the prosperity gospel. It was in this seed that it, that it started to flourish. And Kenyon's teachings in turn had an influence on the bigger prosperity gospel teachers of the 20th century. So names you'll probably be familiar with. Okay, um, Ken, key, key guy Kenneth Copeland. Okay, he's the guy who's got kind of a wild eyes. You YouTube him, he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's all kind of off the wall. Okay, he's like a classic prosperity gospel preacher. Okay, John G. Lake, Oral Roberts... Kenneth Hagen is the founder of the Rhema movement. That's the same Rhema church we've got here in South Africa. Ray McCauley, all those guys, direct prosperity gospel folks. Um, and then in, in turn, that early generation of prosperity teachers influence the contemporary generation of prosperity teachers. Okay, and this includes the guys T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Paul, Paula White, Bill Johnson, Todd White. I think as if you go to any Christian bookshop now, okay, with obvious exception of plays like Good Neighbors or something like that, if you go to Kum, if you go to the Christian section and the CNA, whose books are you going to find there? All those authors. You're not going to find Spurgeon, you're not going to find Calvin and Luther and um, Jonathan Edwards. Okay, You're going to find these guys. And the point what I'm trying to make here is that 
it's these God's version of Christianity, this prosperity teaching, which for a lot of people here in South Africa and, and also in the rest of the continent, this is Christianity. This is I mean, a lot of people's only experience of Christianity. Because that's all what is presented in the bookshops. It's all that's on the, the Christian television, TBN and all other Christian channels on DSTV or, or wherever else. And it's this theology, therefore, that's been uncritically accepted by many pastors in, on, on, on the continent. So the influence that prosperity teaching has had here in Africa is just is huge. It is essentially what most people think Christianity is, which is a tragic thought. So, importantly, what are the claims of the prosperity gospel? There are three claims. It's God's will for you to be rich. It's God's will for you to be healthy. It's God's will for you to be happy. So let's want to look at uh, each of these things on the, on the terms of the prosperity gospel. See what the prosperity teachers teach on these things in their own words. So we know what we're dealing with here. And also, I don't want to misrepresent the prosperity teachers to you. You need to hear them in your own words. To hear that it actually is as bad as, as, as you think it is. So just as a foundation... The prosperity teachers claim that those three claims, God wants you to be rich, healthy, and happy, that those are biblical claims. That's, that's what it's taught in the Bible. And at the heart of their argument for this is that they, they have a unique application of the Mosaic Covenant. And specifically, they look at the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 28, and they apply that to the Christian life. Okay, so we know the context of, 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 of that uh, passage. God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness in Mount Sinai, gave them the, the law in Mount Sinai, and now through Moses led them to the edge of the promised land, Mount Nebo. They're looking over, they're seeing the promised land in front of them, the Jordan below them, and they get the blessings and the curses of the covenant. So blessings if they obey the law of Moses, and the blessings listed are extensive. They extend to to um, all areas of their life, the politics of Israel, the, the, the wars, etc. And the curses is all like extensive things. Blessings, obedience, curses for disobedience. And so what they say with with regards to the mosaic covenant is that it means that jesus how they interpret it is that jesus has delivered us from the curse of the law and then every believer is entitled to a curse-free life curse-free existence of earth they we entitled to the riches and blessings and health and abundant life that are promised in those blessings in Deuteronomy 28. And those bad things, the curses in Deuteronomy 28, whether it's a sickness or poverty, um, the fruit of the curse, they say that all those things have no place in the Christian life at all. And to show that I'm not just making this up, Kenneth Copeland writes concerning Deuteronomy 28. Remember what was listed under the curse in Deuteronomy 28. Poverty of every kind, political failure, drought, war, every calamity known to mankind, and Jesus has redeemed us from it all. All sickness, all disease, even those not mentioned there, come under the curse. Therefore, we are redeemed from all sickness and all disease. You need to fight the temptation to be sick just as you would fight the temptation to lie or steal. End quote. Right, I'm not going to refute this stuff now. We'll get to that. So I just want you to hear the prosperity guys on, on, in, in their own words. So the first claim the prosperity guys got wants you to be rich. So they teach that abundant material wealth is 
promised to every believer in Christ. And they say, well, look at the Old Testament. Look at Abraham, David, and Solomon. These guys were very wealthy. They had lots of gold. Uh, they had these big mansions. They had lots of cattle and slaves and everything. Um, and this abundance of material wealth was, was surely a sign of God's blessing. And then they point to the New Testament and a common text that they, that they use is to support earthly riches is 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, which says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Okay, so they're claiming, in essence, is that Jesus died. Why did he die? So we can rich. Okay, so I obviously butchered <laughs> that text incredibly, but that, that's how they're using, that's what they're teaching, text they're using to support their claims. Okay, so you can see a mis clear misuse of, of, of that scripture, ripped out of its context. Okay, so God wants you to be rich. Secondly, God wants you to be healthy. The prosperity teachers claim that it's always God's will to heal the sick, no matter what. And they justify this theologically by saying, by teaching that God has already achieved your healing through the atonement of Christ on the cross. So they will say, just as the atonement has taken on all the sin of, of God's people and has, has forgiven us and, and we receive that forgiveness of sins by faith. So Christ has taken on every disease equally, just as he's done sin. And so it's by faith which we receive absolute healing. So Kenneth Hagin writes, Although healing is manifested in the physical, it is really a spiritual blessing because it is spiritual healing. God is not going to heal your body. He's not going to do one thing about healing you. He's already done all he is ever going to do about healing you. He laid on Jesus your sickness and disease. He has already done something about it. Jesus has already borne them. And by his stripes ye were healed. Get, believe, get your believing in line with what God's word says. Quit hoping. Okay, as you see there, he, how they, the text that they use to justify this teaching is Isaiah 53 verse 5. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was you know, Messianic prophecy, obviously. He was um, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him... The chastisement was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. So basically, as I said, our healing has already been achieved by Christ on the cross. We just need to appropriate that healing by faith. Now, another way that's used to to teach that it's always God's will to heal, and this is this is what I used to teach at my old charismatic church. Was influenced by Bill Johnson, is, and Bill Johnson especially emphasizes this, is that um, he will, if you've, they'll look at this in, in the American Gospel tonight. Uh, Bill Johnson's book, When Heaven Invades Earth, is like all about this. Um, that he says that Jesus is perfect theology. Okay, so a lot of these things, they kind of, they sound true. And even there is an element of truth in some of the stuff. But it's, it's an incomplete picture. So what Bill Johnson means when he says Jesus is perfect theology is that God reveals his perfect will through Jesus. Okay, now there's also, there's, that's not necessarily false as well. But what, what he does to, to justify healing is that we say, okay, well, let's look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And every single person that comes to Jesus for healing, what happens? Jesus heals them. He doesn't turn away anyone. So Johnson says, well, you see, ah, evidence. 
if Jesus is perfect theology, if Jesus perfectly represents the will of the Father, well, and then Jesus, ne- and Jesus, without exception, healed everyone, then therefore today, it's always God's will to heal. Now that's very convincing. Okay, and I used to, as I said, I used to teach this faithfully, and say that it's always God's will to heal all the time. But we'll see, there's a, there are big problems with this. And we'll get to the problems in a moment. But just so we can see, God wants you to be healthy. Okay, God, it's always, the core thing here is that it's always God's will to heal all people all the time. Big part of the prosperity teaching. And it's this aspect of it that you're going to find, especially in the kind of broad evangelical side of life. It, it, it's 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 insidious this kind of teaching it's, it's not as offensive as the kind of extreme excesses of prosperity gospel teaching this is is, is common in, in all over the show okay third promise of the prosperity gospel god it's god's will for you always to be happy so the prosperity teachers teach that it's only god's will to bring blessing and happiness into your life. And and how do they justify it? Well, they root it in the goodness of God. So in the very character of God. And so they, the proof text, Matthew 7, 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So they say, well, God only gives good things to His children. So this means that all the bad things, whether it's poverty and sickness and challenges of life and tragedies, surely they are not from God. To attribute those bad things to God is blasphemous. God only, because God's good, He only gives good things to us. All those other things are from Satan. Okay, now let's just say that we're not deny, we don't want to deny the existence of, of Satan. Okay, but for the prosperity teaching, it's like an equal and opposite view of God and Satan. God good, Satan bad. And so essentially they always teach, and I used to teach this as well, that it's never ever God's will for suffering in your life. Ever. And they will use John 10.10 10 to, to justify that. Okay, the thief only comes to Seal, kill, and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Okay, another one that's been ripped out of its context. Okay, because we know that particular text is not talking about Satan, actually. It's talking about the teachers of the law. Anyway, so the, the central thing here is that God is good. Satan is bad. God is only going to give his children good things. All bad things are not from God. And this is exactly why another big prosperity teacher, the pastor of the biggest church in the United States, Joel Osteen, his catch line on a year and wrote a book with this title is live your best life now. Because surely God only wants good things in your life. So live your best life now. So now the question is for the prosperity guys, well, how do these three promises become realities in the Christian life. And what is the answer? Faith. And specifically, the word of faith. Now, this is central to understanding prosperity theology. So it's all rooted in this. And this is classic E.W. Kenyan stuff. That they will say that just as God created the universe out of nothing by speaking it into existence through the power of his word. So are we able to speak things into existence? God spoke reality into existence. So that means we too can speak our own realities into existence. We also can create something out of nothing throughout the power of our words. Okay, E.W. Kenyon, this is what he says. Faithful words brought the universe into being and faithful words are ruling that universe together. 
today. So essentially he's teaching, he's saying that we are able to, we have the power within us to speak wealth and happiness and abundance into existence by positively confessing them. And it's this aspect of Kenyan's teaching that's where we see the influence of, of pantheism. Okay, that we become many gods. If we are many gods, because that's an you know that's an attribute of God, that He's able to to create something out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo. Okay, only God can do that. But what Kenyan is saying, no, no, no. Humans can do that too. Why? Because we also God. This lies at the heart of prosperity teaching here, this pantheistic element. And the, the, the Dewey tonight is, is good at, at showing that. Okay, he, he, Kenyon even teaches that we have the same essence as God, as believers. So we have the same potential to speak things into existence by the, the, the words of our faith. We can, we can command blessings from God. Uh, we can command God to do stuff. So a, a good indication... If uh, that you're in prosperity settings or if you're in a prosperity church or if you're around people who are influenced by prosperity gospel, what they're going to be praying and saying things like, I command healing. You know, I command this disease to, to be gone. I, I speak joy and life into this situation. Okay, all that kind of Christianese that's very common to hear in South Africa. It's all rooted in, in, in the prosperity theology. But not only does the prosperity teaching say we've we got to speak prosperity into existence, but it also teaches that we've got to sow a seed of faith in order for God to act. So this brings out the transactional nature of the prosperity gospel. So... If we want God to act, if we want those riches, if we want the, that, that healing, well, we got to do something. But we want riches, well, yeah, we got to talk. We got to give. We got to give the church a lot of money, and then that's going to unlock blessings in the heavenlies, and then our bank account is is, is going to get full. It's, it's as crass as that. Yeah, same with healing. If we want healing, we've got to do something for God. We've got to demonstrate our strong faith. We've got to fast for 10 days. Or we've got to also pay some money. Or whatever it may be. In order to receive these blessings, we've got to do something first. Okay, Malachi 3.10 is often used to justify this. Okay, bring, quote, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And there I put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now the big problem with all this is, well, what happens when the stuff doesn't happen? Okay, what happens if you don't get healed, if you're not rich, and if your life is going from tra tragedy to tragedy? And it was this reality that the Lord used to bring me out of this prosperity teaching was the pastoral implications. Real life. Okay, when you're dealing with broken people and you may you're teaching that it's God's will to heal all the time, but people still have their diseases. People in the church are still dying of cancer. Um, people are still getting their houses repossessed by the bank. Well, what's the problem? And according to the prosperity gospel, the problem is with you. The problem is with your lack of faith. It's not a lack of faith. you got hidden sin. It's not that, well, you haven't sacrificed enough for God. The reality is, pastorally, this crushes people. And so for me to start, start to see that firsthand in the pastoral ministry, that started to crack the wall that there's something there's the fruit of this stuff is not gospel fruit it's quite the opposite and so this is when the warning sign or lights start to go off 
So, if I can just summarize things so far where we're at in terms of what we got here. We got, what we got here with the prosperity teaching. Well, firstly, we've got a gospel that's dependent on our work. Well, a gospel in inverted commas that's just dependent on our works. Dependent on how much we give, how much faith we have. It's also a gospel that doesn't address the main issue of sin. Get to that now. It's about a God who's not sovereign, who's at our the whims of of us who can command him what to do. It teaches a powerful Satan who brings all sorts of challenges into our life. It's an obsession with material blessings at the expense of spiritual blessings. You know, it's a man-centered gospel. Yeah, it's 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 up to us to get right with God. And what we do for him. And it's then it's all intertwined with various superstitions, twisting of scriptures, and essentially ending up with a pagan view of God. And this is something that, that Conrad and Bearway has, has argued of why the prosperity gospel has taken root so profoundly in Africa is that he makes a connection between African traditional religion, which is essentially paganism, and prosperity gospel, which is essentially paganism as well. It's one and the same in that our view, the pagan view of God is that in order for the gods to do stuff, you've got to sacrifice. You've got to give him stuff so the God will give them stuff so the gods will act. And that's essentially what it is. It's idolatry. It's it's at the end of that it's a false gospel. It's no gospel at all. So given all of this, how do we equip our students to stand against it? Now if we can take a step back. There's some striking similarities to all the stuff in the prosperity gospel, our church context here, particularly in Africa, and the medieval church of Europe, going back to the 1300s, 1400s, under Rome. How so? Well, the medieval church, the true gospel, like here in Africa, the prosperity teaching was being obscured. By false teaching. Okay, it was a man-centered gospel that was being taught by the church. Okay, a workspace gospel was what was being preached. Pagans' practices and superstitions were being brought back into, were being replaced, were replacing biblical teaching. And there were even prosperity teachers back in 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 the medieval church. Okay, one guy in particular, a guy called Johann Tetzel. He used to go around the villages of, of Europe in the name of the church and his famous quote is is that um, as soon as the gold in the casket rings the soul from purgatory springs so what was he saying there is he saying give money to the church so that God will release your dead ancestor from purgatory and give him a ticket to heaven in other words, give money to God so that He will do stuff for you. Same thing. Same thing as prosperity gospel. Okay, so what's changed? There's nothing that's changed. There's nothing in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new underneath the sun. So how then was that false gospel combated at the time? In the medieval church. There you go. The recovery of the true gospel. The true preaching of the word of God. And it was God in his providence just at the right time raised up men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Huldrych Zwingli and the rest of them who started to preach the word again which had not been preached for so long by the medieval church. And that's why the, the, the cry of the Reformation was post tenebras lux. After darkness, light. 
Because so from centuries the church had been in plunge into darkness because the preachers weren't preaching the word. And here these guys just took the word and they started to preach it. They started to preach the gospel. And um, my favorite Luther quotes, okay, this is, this is uh, not one of his X-rated ones, which they're a couple. Um, this is a cool one. He says, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy and that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. And brothers and sisters, this is precisely what we need right now in our context. Is there a recovery of the true preaching of the word of God, of, of, of the gospel. And as I said before, we are all in a unique position that we are able to teach God's word to the future leaders and pastors of the church in our continent. So therefore, the answer to the question is how are we to prepare our students to stand against prosperity gospel? Teach them the Word of God. More specifically, teach them Reformed theology, which is the best expression, in my opinion, of, of the Word of God. And when I, when, I, when I say Reformed theology, I'm meaning it in its broader sense. I'm saying historic Protestant theology, the, the, the best of the traditions of the Lutheran Church, the Continental Reformed Church, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the Baptists, which we all had the same thing in common, which is the recovery of the gospel and, and the faithful preaching of God's word. And what I want to look at now is why is that, uh, that the Reformed theology is uniquely positioned in order to equip students to stand against the false teachings of the prosperity gospel. So I just want to draw out a couple of examples of why that I believe that is true. Now I've got... Seven examples here um, on, on your on your notes, and so this is just sort of a slice of how to apply reformed theology into combating this false teaching. So, firstly, our commitment to to the Word of God. So we've seen how atrociously the prosperity teachers treat. The word of God. I mean, they're ripping the stuff out of context. They're, they're twisting scripture. They're drawing on extra biblical um, stuff for, for their teaching. Pantheism, Gnosticism, uh, paganism. Um, there's an emphasis on um, extra biblical revelation. I mean, that's why the um, apostles and prophets are the prosperity teachers love calling themselves that because it's the Apostles and prophets, according to the Bible, who uniquely able were able to receive special revelation. Okay, we don't. We believe that their their time is up. Has been up since the early church, but the prosperity folks believe in those continuing offices, and there's a reason for that because they they want to continue to receive revelation above and beyond Scripture. Now, on the other hand, Reformed theology. We've got a high view of, of, of the Word of God. Sola Scriptura. We believe that all our doctrine, all our practice needs to be rooted and derived from the Word of God alone. Um, we don't go beyond the Word of God. We believe that this is sufficient for us. We don't need a prophetic, a new prophetic word because there's enough treasures and wonders in God's Word to instruct us and to feed us and to sustain us. In the Christian life as it is. So we, because of our high view of the word of God, we're able to, we can teach our students to correctly divide the word of God. To, to, to understand its covenantal context properly. To correctly interpret it. And to set them on a solid foundation in order to refute the teachings of, of the prosperity gospel. Okay, so that's the commitment to the word of God. Next thing is the, the true gospel. So we've seen, hopefully, that the prosperity gospel is no real gospel at all. 
And in fact, all the stuff that they offer and they focus on is really just distractions. Okay, whether it's the miracles or riches or healing, all this peripheral stuff, they, they make the, the main thing. And that's always a warning sign. When in any church, when the gospel, the true apostolic gospel is no longer front and center in the preaching and in the practice of the church, well, there's a problem there. And it's clearly a problem in, in the prosperity um, context. Okay, because we, we saw that in order to get God's blessing, prosperity system, you've got to give stuff to God. You've got to do stuff. And it's essentially a, a form of legalism. Paganism. And Luther, he called this, well, he, he called, and he saw the same thing in, in the, the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. He called this the theology of glory. In other words, that we got to climb up the ladder to get to God in our own terms. We've got to do stuff in order to, to reach God. We've got to give things to Him. We've got to do good works. We've got to apply spiritual techniques and practices. And then we'll reach God. But Reformed theology, on the other hand, is centered on the true gospel. Okay? Try to keep the main thing the main thing. So what does gospel mean? Good news. Okay, two, two Greek words, you and uh, angelion, which means good, you and angelion is message. So it's a good message. And that's that's important to to keep in mind that the good that the gospel is 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 a proclamation. It's not stuff we need to do. It's not stuff we even can be. It's what God has already done in Christ. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5 is a great summary of, of, of what the gospel is. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So you see there, the gospel deal zones in on something in particular. It zones in on what Christ did for us in regard to sin. And it's this that the prosperity gospel completely misses. Okay? The fundamental problem of mankind is that we're born into sin. Hey, we've all fallen short of God's glory. The penalty of sin is death. And because of that, every single human being, no exceptions, according to God's justice, should face an eternity in hell facing the wrath of God. Now compared to the prosperity gospel, where it's all about getting a new BMW and increasing your bank account. And it completely misses that we got bigger problems than a new BMW. We have problem that potentially every single um, people are going to go to hell. The eternal consequences here, and it's only the true gospel that solves the problem. Okay, it deals with the, the, the heart of the issue that it's because Christ took his sins upon himself and he faced the wrath of God instead of us and on the third day he rose again forgiving us our sins and reconciling us to the Father and because he's done that we receive that by faith we are his forever I mean that's the heart of things yeah, it's all God's Work. It's what God has already done in Christ. And this is what Luther, in contrast to the theology of glory, this is the true gospel is what Luther calls the theology of the cross. Where instead of us climb up the ladder to God, it's God and Christ who condescends to us. And meets us in our muck and mire and our sin. And raises us up and it does everything necessary in order to reconcile us to God. Salvation is from the Lord. He does it all. Every every single bit of it. And that's the heart of the gospel. 
that it's all his work, that it's all a gift of his grace. Now, this is just the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel. And what we've been hearing is that you 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 gotta do all this stuff in order to, to, to get blessing. The true gospel is God does it all. And we receive it by faith. So coming back to how we help our students here, brothers and sisters, saturate your theological teaching with the gospel. Because the more our students are saturated with the gospel, the more they're going to be inoculated against the false gospel. They will see it for themselves. The third point is the sovereignty of God. So prosperity gospel, so we um, can we can speak things into existence, word of faith, we can command God to heal and he must do it. Now, I mean, this is a, 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 an assault on the sovereignty of God. And a lot of the prosperity teachers, they detest the doctrine of, of the sovereignty of God. People like Bill Johnson, I mean, they, they hold sermons that he does specifically trying to dismantle God's sovereignty. As long as there's a whole chapter in, in When Heaven Invades Earth where he, he tries to pull apart the sovereignty of God. Now, hello, warning lights. When you start tinkering or, or having, if you've got an issue with the sovereignty of God, you've got a problem with God. It's, it's, it's a big issue. Okay, and the other prosperity oddity that we saw regarding the doctrine of God is, is they basically have a dualistic understanding of God. Okay, God good, Satan bad. God and Satan are like equal and opposite forces. Okay, if we truly believe in God's sovereignty, you know that, that, that that's, that's kind of patently false. Okay, a Reformed theology has a very high view of the sovereignty of God. We essentially, we're God-centered theology. Theology proper, the study of God. Hey, we have a, 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 as the Bible teaches, a, a creator-creature distinction. That God is God, we are not. Only God can speak things into existence for the very fact that He is God. As creatures, we, we don't possess that, that power. Psalm 115 verse 3, Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He, he pleases. So that's true. Well, God's not obligated to obey us. He's God and He's going to do what He wants. Just because of the fact that he's God. Some people he heals. And hang, if God wants to heal somebody today, hallelujah. But sometimes, and more often than not, he does. He chooses not to heal people. Why not? I don't know. But he's God. And we're not. In the same way, he saves some, but he doesn't save others. Why? Well, Apostle Paul asks the same question in Romans 9. And what is the answer that he comes around to in his back and forth? Who are you, O oh man? To answer back to God. Basically, God's going to do what God's going to do. He's going to have mercy upon whom he has mercy. It's his prerogative of being God that he, 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 he can do this. He's not... We, we can't force him. We can't manipulate him. And that's a very much where the prosperity gospel goes. Now closely related, well, an outworking of, of, the, of, of the sovereignty of God here is, is, is a theology of suffering. And this is a big one, the prosperity gospel. So we saw that the prosperity gospel teaches that it's not God's will for you to suffer. Okay, bad things come from Satan. Good things come from God. What's the problem with that? True, <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of verses that uh, talk about suffering doing good things. <laughs> exactly. You start reading this closely. But so here can people come into the city and just go to the city or out Exactly. There's a lot of stuff that's uncomfortable for us to read because we start to see that, ooh. God has inflicted people with diseases. God has caused people to die. God opens the earth and swallows people. 
um, the book of Job. <laughs> I mean, like, and then obviously the, as you said, those specific verses which talk about suffering as a, as, as a gift from God. Um, so it's patently unbiblical, okay? And the thing is, it's it's an outworking of the sovereignty of God. If because God is sovereign, what that means is that all things, good and bad, ultimately come from Him. That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter three, says the following: God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass yet so as thereby neither is god the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures nor is the liberty of contingency of second clauses taken away but rather established what's it all saying well everything that happens god has a doubt at the same time god's not the author of sin the scripture just presents that those truths to us. It doesn't seek to explain that tension away. We just we just got to accept it. So the good thing about Reformed theology is that it equips one with the theology of suffering. And I can tell you, and those of you involved in pastoral ministry, you will you will you will see this firsthand. Is that and as I mentioned before, when stuff goes wrong in people's lives and they've been taught prosperity gospel stuff, what's gonna what is the the usual outworking of that? They get angry with God because and they, they keep condemnation on themselves because of their own supposed lack of faith and sin. And they can get very twisted and bitter and want nothing to do with Christianity. If we equip our people and our students with a good theology of suffering, it's going to immunize our people from doing that. It's going to enable them to cope when times are tough. And invariably, they do get tough. And with a high view of God's sovereignty, that's possible. How so? Well, we just teach what the scripture teaches. Is that suffering and lack of healing is not a result of our lack of, of faith or hidden sin or Satan's plans. And riches and blessings are, are not guaranteed for Christians. But in fact, all things good and bad come from God. And there's a sin-cursed reality to which we live in. And that's why 1 Peter... 167 says and this you rejoice though for now a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory the honor of the revelation of jesus christ it's the heart of a chair heart of a holding and teaching our students a good theology of suffering is that you see that actually the Lord has permitted and brought brings suffering into our lives for the purposes of our own sanctification. And rather instead of seeing suffering as, as, as a bad thing and seeing it as just all from Satan, is actually an instrument of the Lord for our good. There you go. Then you use all things. Look at those and them. Fifth thing, covenant theology. So being equipped with a good covenant theology equips God's against the errors of the prosperity gospel. How is this so? Well, covenant, what is covenant theology? A covenant theology, reform theology can also be used interchangeably. Covenant theology we speak about is referring to specifically the covenantal structure of the Bible. And in particular, helps us to correctly divide between law and gospel. Um, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. So what's this have to do with the prosperity gospel? Well, a lot. Why? Well, we saw right in the beginning, much of the prosperity, the, the presuppositions of the prosperity gospel rest 
on a false application of the Mosaic Covenant to the Christian life. So they, we saw that they, they, they take Deuteronomy 28, they take Malachi 3 verse 10. Okay, so blessings and curses for obedience. No, sorry, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Um, Malachi, Christians are still obligated to, to tithe to the Lord in, in, in order to receive um, blessings. If you don't tithe, you're under a curse. How many times, I mean, I've heard that many times that churches, basically, preachers telling their people that the, you, you're under a curse if you don't tithe today. I mean, we'll, and why is that wrong? Well, it's a faulty covenant theology that's at play there. Um, Basically, a proper covenant theology, we see that the Mosaic Covenant was made specifically with the nation of Israel in order to govern its existence in the promised land. And because of that, it was temporary in nature. The promised land is no more. The real promised land is to come in the new creation. Okay, and also Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law, the law of Moses was just a guardian until Christ came. The fulfillment of the law. So it's Christ who, who obeys the law in, in its entirety. He fulfills it. So it, it means for us as Christians that we no longer are bound to obey it in order to gain favor and blessing from God. Something that the prosperity gospel teaches. We've been released from the burden of having to obey the whole law. Because instead, Christ has obeyed the whole law on our behalf. It is active obedience. And he counts his righteousness to us as a result. So it's these ceremonial and civil aspects of the moral law that have been abrogated, according to covenant theology. In other words, Christ has fulfilled them. So the, the ceremonial and the, the civil laws include... The tithing laws, which is under the ceremonial law, okay, the tithing was a part of the, the worship of Israel, um, specific to the worship of Israel. The blessings and curses are particular to the nation of Israel. It's a part of the civil law. The nation of Israel, the in, in terms of the, the Old Testament nation of Israel, is no longer in existence. Nations cannot claim and people cannot, we, it's, it's illegitimate for us to claim those blessings and curses from Deuteronomy 28 in the New Covenant, in the Christian life. Yeah, that was specifically for the, the land of Israel. Obviously, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, are still applicable to us as Christians. We're not saved by doing them, but they, we do them as a response to the gospel. Okay, so for the prosperity folks to, to apply Deuteronomy 28 and um, the tithing laws to, to New Covenant Christianity, it, it, it's illegitimate. There's, there's no basis for that. And we see that if we have a decent covenant theology. Okay, two last points. I'm going to be quick on this one and then we can some discussion. The atonement of Christ, prosperity gospel, the atonement's all about um, healing. Okay, Christ... The, Christ took all our diseases upon himself and then we get we're healing. Really, the focus in Scripture is about Christ taking upon our sin. Okay, New Testament interprets this healing not necessarily as physical healing, but as forgiveness of sins. And we see that in 1 Peter 2.23-24. And lastly, and really most importantly, is eschatology. This is where it all comes together. The okay, prosperity gospel at its heart is, is all concerned about blessings in this age. In other words, we said it's an over-realized eschatology. It's all blessings all now. Okay, it's, it's, an, um, it's, it's heaven on earth right now. All of it. Where Reformed theology and other good theologies are going to say... That yes, we certainly may see glimpses of the kingdom of God on heaven, now on, on earth now, and Christ was a perfect example of that. That's precisely why Christ healed everyone, because he embodied the kingdom of God. But Christ is no longer with us. And instead we we only see little glimpses now and then when the gospel is preached, when people get saved. But ultimately, the real blessing is to come. 
The real blessing is when Christ returns on the clouds in glory and saves his people for himself and brings ushers in the new creation where we are going to... And then at that point, there will be no more death and no more suffering and no more sin and no more mourning and crying and pain because then the former things will have passed away and he will be our God and we will be his people. Amen.